Let's do take our seats. And we are looking at six lies from Satan. And John 8.44, as we just heard, it says this. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. The NIV that I quoted for us last week says, he speaks his native language, meaning that Satan is fluent in deceit. And it's uh, very difficult to translate, but the verse literally says, out of the self of him, or out of himself, he speaks. That is, uh, whatever he says flows really from who he is. The liar lies. It's what he does. It's who he is. This means for us that if Satan ever does speak some truth, which he does do, it's never going to be the whole truth and nothing but the truth, but only ever said to support a bigger lie. Today's little phrase is a good example, as Ben was saying, as he introduced our service this morning, a great example of how a truth can be woven into a lie to support a bigger lie. You're not good enough. That's lie number two. Now, it is true that you are not good enough for God. And our psalm says that our sin is great, the Hebrew word meaning that our sin abounds or exceeds. In fact, I think this Hebrew word could be used to describe a military rank. It's uh, the idea that somehow our sin is, is in, in charge of us. It's, it's bigger than we are. So it is true that you're not good enough for God. There is a gulf between sinful you and perfect God that cannot be bridged by you and your works. You're not good enough for God. It's true, but it's not the whole truth, is it? See, Satan would have your theology stop there. That's enough theology for the day. You must be tired. Why don't you give up? And he would suppose that although there is this gap, and that's true, let's just go home now and sulk, shall we? As opposed to reading on and seeing that, yes, you cannot bridge the gap, but God can. Here's the lie. The gap cannot be bridged. There's the lie. This is why we have to get Scripture open. We uh, can't just imagine what it might say inside. And you can't just take my word for what I think it says inside. And you certainly can't take Satan's word for what he wants you to believe is inside. We must get it open for ourselves. And we must see what the word says in context as well. Let's look either side of each verse as we look at them, just to see uh, exactly what it is that God is trying to say to us. And you can use the bulletin as well as we look at this psalm. For example, Psalm 25, verse 10, does say, my sin is great. But the whole verse says, for your name's sake, O Lord, forgive my sin for it is great. The verse comes in the context of forgiveness. Satan wants you to miss the truth that although your sin is great, God's grace is greater. He doesn't want you to know that. For your name's sake, forgive, says the psalm. Reminding us of God's covenant name, L-O-R-D in capital letters, this name of God that we've looked at many times to reveal and to remind that God is a God of grace, God is a God of covenants, God is a, a God who makes promises, and that God's character is revealed to us 
through his promises. And everything God does flows from who God is. You could say, if you wanted to, that when God forgives, he speaks his native language. It's what God does. You could say, if you like, out of his own character, God forgives. Or you could say, the forgiver forgives. It's what he does. Satan does not want you to see this. Now, what is Satan's aim in hiding the whole truth from us? Why does he do this? John 8, 44 says, he was a murderer from the beginning. He does not want you to be forgiven. He wants you to die. That is Satan's aim. And uh, I'd like to look a little bit at how it manifests right here, right now. Not just what it looks like to go to hell, but what it looks like to live like you're going to hell. What does a life look like now that is built upon the lie? And how does it manifest if you've internalized this thing from Satan? Well, pastorally, I would say I've seen this manifest in three different ways. And at the first way in which internalizing this lie will manifest itself in your life is just outright more sin. That's, that's certainly one way. Some people, they see this half-truth that they are not good enough for God, they give up, and then they revel in it. And they think, well, in which case, there's not a lot I can do about this. I might as well sin some more. Why not? I once met the uh, leader of a satanic motorcycle gang. And uh, he told me that he wanted everybody to be afraid of him, and he wanted everybody that met him to know that he was the most evil person they would ever meet in their lives. And of course, not all negative behavior is going to be so extreme and brash as that. You're unlikely to meet very many people like that. There was a partner in my law firm who looked very different to the motorcyclist, but actually he behaved about the same. And he would hand out these pointless tasks on a Friday night to young trainees just to waste their weekend and then on a Monday morning, he would let it sit on his desk for the whole week until the next Friday came around. And then he would send them off to do the work again, just to waste another weekend. And at the end of this exercise, he would write off their time so it looked like they'd done nothing at all, just for his own fun. And you can't make this up. His surname was actually derived from the Latin word for Lucifer. You know, I'm just saying kind of obvious. Do you know what fixed the guy? You know what put him in his place? A new phone system with caller ID. As soon as that name flashed up, everyone avoided the call. Here's my advice for you. If Satan comes calling, don't answer. <laughs> now, thankfully, people like that are comparatively rare. I mean, they're very different, those two characters, but both difficult in their own ways. But thankfully, people who are that mean are quite rare. And it's far more likely that your belief in this lie, if you've internalized this lie that you're not good enough, far more likely that it will manifest itself in one of two milder but equally deadly ways. The second way that belief in the lie manifests itself is simply to work harder at being good. To, to spend your whole life trying to narrow that gap between you and God until 
maybe conceivably you could just about jump across. That's how many people think. Many people live with guilt about the gap. Many people live in shame and they live in fear of the gap. And uh, they're constantly trying through their own efforts to get right with God in their own strength. Every religion appeals to this mindset, except for Christianity. Uh, Many churchgoers have adopted that satanic mindset and brought it into the church. You know, you need to do this thing this way, do it often enough and do it well enough, and then maybe God will love you. And uh, increasingly, the good news is that even this mindset in the church is becoming comparatively rare. That is how my generation thought and how the generation above me thought. And uh, you want to evangelize someone about 42 years old, say, or above, uh, you ask them something like this, do you feel bad? Do you feel guilty? Do you feel afraid? Well, let me tell you about grace. And it works. But uh, not so much with the generation below mine. Actually, the thinking is a little bit different. And increasingly, we're seeing this, the third way in which belief in the lie will manifest is apathy. Who cares? You know, they look at all of these different ideas swirling around, conclude that the whole thing is a big fat waste of time. Who knows what to believe? My truth is this. You'll hear that phrase, that's not my truth. Well, if it's just your truth, and no one else's, it's probably a lie. And so my truth is this, let's have some fun. Let's do some good conveniently, as defined by me, as things I like doing, and then let's find a tribe that thinks like me. That's the third way this manifests. And you evangelize that group in a very different way. You talk about meaning. You talk about purpose. Talk about identity. Talk about belonging. And talk about love. Because that's what you'll find in Jesus Christ. So there's a Three primary ways that I have seen pastorally belief in the lie manifest. It might not be the only three, but it's certainly three that I'm seeing quite a lot. And you'll notice, won't you, that some of these reactions are nicer than others. The the kind of satanic biker guy was probably not quite as nice as the sort of millennial guy who's baking homemade cookies and doing his own thing. But uh, you're not saved by niceness. And this means that Satan really doesn't care which of the ways the lie manifests, just so long as you believe it. And our job in this series is not to combat the effects of the lie. My job and Ben's job in this series is not just simply to try and get you to change your behavior. I'm not really interested in it. Our job is to expose the lie. That's all we're trying to do right now. So today, as we try and expose this lie, I'd like to look at two passages of Scripture that do this very well. You know, let's let's test the theory at the extremes. Can you make yourself good enough for God, or does God need to do it for you? Let's look for the most important people in the Bible who are getting it the most wrong, at the wrong time and in the wrong place, who are most in trouble, and see what God does for them and conclude what it means for us. 
So I'd like, first of all, please, to turn to Zechariah, Old Testament prophet. As Robert said, near the very end of the Old Testament, we're in chapter 3. And in this passage, Zechariah 3, prophet Zechariah, he sees a vision of a, a heavenly trial taking place with Satan as the accuser operating like a prosecuting counsel. And the defendant in this matter is Joshua, the high priest, whose job it was to take a people who were not good enough for God and to atone on their behalf in the temple and to reconcile them through sacrifice to God. Now, he would prepare at great length for this task, prepare for the Day of Atonement, ensuring meticulously that he was clean and pure and prepared and ready for the task, with prescribed items of clothing being of particular significance for this job as a priest. And the problem in the vision of the heavenly trial taking place is that Joshua is standing before God dressed in filthy garments. Filth is a strong phrase in the original Hebrew that most Modern Western translations try to clean up a little bit for us so you can all go and have your brunch after church. But uh, it is the word, the same word that appears several times in the Old Testament for excrescences of various kinds. In other words, Joshua is standing here on trial as the high priest, clothed in robes, smeared with human feces and puke. And you know, it sounds like a law firm Christmas party, doesn't it? It's absolutely wild, <laughs> completely inappropriate. Um, I'm going to get complaints for preaching this sermon. I'm going to refer you to Scripture when I get them, as I always do. If you think it's slightly inappropriate that I would use those terms in church, how much more so would it be for the high priest to be clothed that way before the throne of God himself? What would be unthinkable for an ordinary person in an ordinary place, at an ordinary time, is completely mind-bendingly awful for this man in that place at that time. Highly unthinkable for the high priest to appear before God himself clothed in such filth. So Satan is like, yes, like got him banged to rights. This is like the easiest case I've ever taken is, is, is uh, going through Satan's mind. He is not good enough for God, all right? Look at him. And God won't even let the trial begin. God's having none of it. In verse 2, he rebukes Satan. That word rebuke appears twice. And he says, how dare you accuse this man? He has Satan disbarred, removes his rights of audience. I am not listening to you. I'm not picking up that phone. I know who you are says God. And then God says, I chose this man. In fact, I chose this entire nation. I chose this people. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire, he says, like a little stick that I dragged out of a fire before it, it's destroyed? God's people have, have been through turmoil. They've been away in Babylon and in slavery, and God has, has rescued them and, and just plucked one little tiny remnant out of destruction. I have rescued this man, says God, and the people that he represents. How dare you accuse him? 
then the order comes from God. Or from the, the angel on his behalf. Remove the filthy garments from him. Comes down this order. Remove them. Get rid of this kind of mess that he's wearing. See how it's done to him? He doesn't do it himself. God doesn't say, oh, send him to the bathroom, will you, and bring him back in 10 minutes. God cleans him. And uh, there's no way, of course, that Joshua could, could clean himself in this situation. And then verse 4, to make express and explicit what, what is just implied by this change of clothes, he said to him, behold, take note, look, I have taken your iniquity away from you. The sin has been dealt with, and I will clothe you with pure vestments, fine, even feastal robes, party clothes will be given to you. I will replace your sin with something pure. And the liar, not even permitted to speak. It's a very, very extreme example in Scripture. Deliberately, we, we looked for the most extreme example we could find in the Old Testament to prove the point. Take, take the person who most needs to be clean in a place where you most need to be clean and make him as dirty as can be. And what does God do with that? He says, you're not good enough, but I will make you good enough. I will clean you and I will present you as pure. Because the lie is so strong, you're not good enough and the theology stops there. I want to look at one more. We can find the same thing happening in a different book of Scripture. Maybe we'll start to believe it. So let's look for someone else in bigger trouble than we are, receiving more grace than we do, by turning now to 1 Timothy. It's a very different style of writing. It's a very different book. But it's the exact same extreme. 1 Timothy 1.12. This is the Apostle Paul now speaking author of 13 books of scripture, founder of much of the early church, described here as working for God himself. And he describes himself in verse 1, similar image of the trial, as judged, faithful. He's undergone judgment and he's been declared faithful by God. But, like the high priest, in his natural condition, he was a mess. Verse 13 says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, I spoke against God for a living. Persecutor killed the people of God for fun. And uh, an insolent opponent, a hubristes, in the original language, kind of fun word, it means he was proud of this stuff. Like the leader of that satanic biker gang, he got a kick out of being the most evil person you would ever meet. And yet the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Just like that abounding sin in the psalm. Here we see grace abounds and overflows and, and replaces sin and, and cleans away sin and just flows. There is more grace yet to come. Sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Verse 15, here's that little phrase that we often use before an offertory anthem in a liturgical church service. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It's true. You've got to hear this, people who believe the lie. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. If anyone was ever not good enough for God, it was me, says the Apostle Paul. Yet God 
gave me grace in Christ Jesus. Christ is the ultimate high priest. He is the ultimate presence of God. He is the ultimate atonement, the ultimate sacrifice. He is the ultimate founder of the church. He is clothed with the ultimate of sins. The most sinful man that ever walked this earth was Jesus Christ because he took on the sins of the world. Though he was perfect, he became sin for us. And in doing so, he took our place in that trial and presented us in his place as pure and clean to stand before the throne of God. And the scholar David Guthrie, he says that the saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, epitomizes the cardinal fact of Christian truth. It is the truest of truths. The only answer to Satan's lies is Christ Jesus. And Guthrie continues, I love this quote, Paul never got away from the fact that Christian salvation was intended for sinners. And the more he increased his grasp of the magnitude of God's grace, the more he deepened the consciousness of his own naturally sinful state. It is true, you are not good enough for God. But if you turn to Christ, you'll be more than good enough for God. Let's pray. God, Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you test this little idea at the extremes with, with two such prominent characters in such terrible mess who are cleaned by you. And God, we just look to those examples not as people to emulate, but as people to encourage. God, that if there's anything we've done that has left us with one of those reactions, whether it's just despair and more sin, or whether it's hard works and guilt, or whether it's apathy and confusion, or, or some mix of the three, God, we, we ask that you would help us to look to Christ Jesus and see that your grace abounds. Our sin is great, your grace is greater. Amen.